Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be looking at the back of the book. I'm joined by Dennis Duncan, who's a research fellow at Bodleian Library in Oxford, the centre of the study of the book, and Dennis is embarked on writing a history of indexes and the index, that part of the book which most of us notice really only when it's not there or when it's badly done. But last week, and I should make clear that I've got a slight declaration of interest here in that I am the honorary president of the Society of Indexers, so I'm coming with, you know, hat different. The Society of Indexers celebrated its diamond anniversary. It's 60 years since its foundation and inauguration by Harold Macmillan. It's a body that still many people don't know exists. And what they did was launch a national indexing day, which was attended by great hilarity and excitement on social media. And the idea was to bring these shiny creatures out into the light and show them some appreciation, because indexes are never credited, or seldom if ever credited, and yet they do vital work. Dennis, can you start by explaining, perhaps, because most people think when you say, oh, indexes, these have to be professionals, the thing they always hear is indexes can surely now be done by Google, can be done by a computer. Why is that not so? Well, I think that's a very good point. What happens is when we have a long document, we get used to using Control-F to to search through it. When you do that type of search, you're looking for a text string, the the exact spelling of an exact word. And that's kind of analogous to what is called a concordance, which was how the index started off at the start of the 13th century. But what it can't do, searching through a document, is, is find synonyms. What it can't do is find inferences to a concept rather than uh, the concept being there. And you would actually notice, if you were a historian or if you're looking through a biography or if you're using that type of non-fiction book, the kind of book that often we use rather than read from start to finish, and you want to find that extract, that bit that you were telling your friend about, you'd very quickly realise, if all you could do was find the exact text string, that the that type of index wasn't doing the job you wanted. That So I think that's the difference between what digital can do for us, which is great uh, when we're working with long documents, and what a subject index by a sensitive subject indexer is. And how are they actually made? How does somebody go about making an index? Gosh, well, I can tell you how they used to be made. I'm a historian of the index, but nowadays I think they are done using a piece of software called InDesign, among others. The way that they have always been made in the old days is with slips. So if you go back to uh, the medieval period, even then when, when paper is not paper, paper is parchment and very expensive, you still find people used slips. Because what happens with making an index is, an alphabetical index, is it needs to be a process that takes place in various stages. First you read the book and you jot down all of the important things you're you're going to to need to locate and also the locators, the page references, whatever they are. But then there's another step when you have to put these things in alphabetical order. Once you've done them and you need to rearrange them, you can't really do that if you've just done them on on a big sheet of paper. So index cards or prior to specially made index cards, slips, even slips of parchment or, or vellum would be used to put the thing in order, and then you can copy it out Yeah, in neat. One of the things, I mean, I always feel about indexes when I first started noticing, really, was how much of a, sometimes almost commentary on the text they are. I mean, Mm. the joy of them is sometimes that, you know, you read the biography of somebody and, you know, the subject, the subject of the book, the entry for them in the index is almost a kind of anthology of all their different 
car- yeah, characteristics. That's right. There's really good ones. Well. There's lovely ones. In, in for example, the, the famous index to the the 80s edition of Peeps is is wonderful for that kind of narrative. You can find a minor character and 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 quickly sort of read what happens. People make fun of this or or, or play off this. Virginia Woolf's index for Orlando does exactly this, and it's quite witty and it it, it tells the the story in in Pracy in a single paragraph, but in a kind of jaunty kind of playing off the text way. What you need to worry about is, if you've written a long text, is that the indexer is sensitive to what you're trying to do and not antagonistic towards it. There's the famous thing of the historian, uh, the weak historian, Thomas Macaulay, um, before he dies, saying, let no damn Tory index my history. Because what you what you would have then is the index telling the opposite story, the index working against the text or undermining it. We find some examples in history of exactly this, of... of, of political differences between historians and indexers. And of course, with a large history book, the index is probably the way that most people are going to access it. Not very many people read that type of book from start to finish. So it's really the front door rather than the back door. So you really need to, to make sure that the person who's doing the index is not your enemy. Yes, it does mean that sometimes indexes can be very funny. I always think that's yeah, one of the great absolutely, yeah. joys of them. I mean, on National Index Day, the very distinguished editor, Stuart Prophet, forwarded me his favourite which is the index to a book by Hugh Trevor Roper. It has an en- entry for Peterhouse, the Cambridge College, and, and Citadel of Ultralordianism, 53, 83. <laughs> Movement begins there, 45 to 6, 49. High table conversation not very agreeable, 46. <laughs> it's New Chapel, 84. Shocking goings on there, 85, 87 to 9, 107 to 108. <laughs> Retribution, 89 to 90. Disowned by Lord, 108. Four revolting fellows of, 109. <laughs> Main source of perverts, 113. <laughs> What's really good is the way that even the locators, even the, the numerical part of the index can be funny there. I mean, if it was main source of perverts, 114 to 360. <laughs> exactly. You can... What was the one there, the, the, the disagreeable fellows of, that had all these... Yes, exactly, multiple. <laughs> locations you know it's i mean also you know this even when they're being kind of quite straight i mean i remember one that i but richard ollar's to life of a.l ralph's is the one i always mm. kind of go back to whereas there's this very kind of waspish and cantankerous don who was eaten up with bitterness and envy and you go through and it's all snobbery of sense of unwarranted <laughs> superiority yes, of yeah, yeah. rage at x and you know you just <laughs> It gives you in 50 words. You know, Absolutely. Not really I, I wonder that. I mean, that's probably language that doesn't appear in the main text, that, that they can be a little bit more, uh, as you say, waspish, a little bit more sort of brief in the in the index. Use a type of language that, that is implicit but not explicit in the main text. Yes. I mean, one of the concerns that you know the Society of Indexers have, which is a sort of professional body that trains indexers to do the job properly, that teaches them you know particular subject specialisms mm. and you know also in a way, provides a support network and it helps people to kind of invigilate, you know, they have a complaints procedure that you'd very much hope that society members aren't subject to it. One of their concerns is always that actually, nowadays, publishing, getting a racketeer place, it's much, you know, the index is often the first thing to go, that authors are expected to do their own or the index is expected to turn it round in Mm. two hours, more or less, for Tuppence Hapney. Is this a historical moment we're at or has, have, have indexes come and gone? I don't know one thing that, that is striking is, is doing your own, even even readers doing their own is something that goes back as, as far as you like, the big bible concords maybe the first kind of milestone in indexing appears around about 1230 Is and that the first index? Yeah, if you like, you might find one or two 
examples in the decades before that. But that's the first major one. That's literally an index, about 127,000 locators for about 10,000 words in the Bible. It's a word index. It's a concordance. It's like a control F of, of the Bible yeah. done at the Dominican monastery at Saint-Jacques in Paris. And it's extraordinary. It's a, it's a huge book. It must have taken a, a very long time to complete. And then it's so huge that it turns out to be not that useful because if you want to look up the word Lord, for example, there's 47 pages worth of, of Domine, Dominus, and so on. So what they decide then, about two decades later, is that we need to do this, but we need to put a little bit of context. We need to put three or four words of, of the quotation around Which is what it. we recognise as a modern concordance. That's right, yeah, yeah. But unfortunately this goes, it's a kind of Goldilocks problem, that this book turns out to be three volumes big, and each one looks like a kind of Disney spell book, you know, as, as big as... Yeah. So it's, a, it's actually useless because it's too thorough. So the first one was, was too small and the second one's too big. And so then around about the 1280s you get the third edition of the, of the Songshak Concordance, which, which takes the contextual stuff, keeps that, but limits it to just two or three words. And that's basically the model of, of the Concordance that carries right through, through the Reformation, through to pretty much the, the, the contemporary concordance. But while that's going on, the index has become accepted. So even at this point, even in the late part of the 13th century, people are doing their own indexes. People who buy books are writing in the back or writing on scrap paper lists of, of, of their own words. This is... The, the I'm sort of, a, as a book reviewer, do, you know, does, exactly, you go yeah. through writing, you know, that's the bit when this happens. That's exactly right. And, uh, and of course, at this point, if you, have, if you have a book and I have a copy of the same book, it won't have the same pagination because this is prior to printing. So the idea that people are doing their own index is probably makes sense because the shared index isn't that useful. It's one of the reasons why the Bible chapter, Bible chapters come about about the start of the 1200s. But it's the concordance that really sets those in stone because now, as long as we stick to the same chapters because we don't have page numbers that work we can all talk about the same chapter anyway but we do get people doing their own indexes at this period and I think that that's something that persists that you find in sort of fan culture um, people do their own indexes to science fiction books you can find them online people do their own indexes to Harry Potter because usually novels don't have indexes. Yeah there's sort of online concordance to Gravity's Rainbow that's, that's fantastically right, yeah. useful yeah. actually if you're trying <laughs> yes that's right yeah, yeah. Find a bit in there. And when does the index, as we kind of recognise it now, start to take shape? Because this, I, you know, now an index has, you know, a sort of standardised form of the, the thing that's mu- much mocked, but the reversals, you yes, know, yes, index, yeah, comma, yeah. the. But also this idea of sort of subheadings and, you know, extra. Yeah. I mean, rather than the concordances naked, you know, here is the quote. Yeah. It's a sort of interpretive work. How does that evolve? Well, that's, the crucial thing is, is the arrival of print in, in the middle of the 1400s. And then. In 1470, in Cologne, there's a book of sermons that has page numbers. It's the first printed book with page numbers. It's, it seems like such a small thing, but it makes such a big difference because then you can be in Warsaw and I can be in Exeter, but I can write you a letter and say, I'd like to draw your attention to this thing on page 16. And it doesn't have to be one of the great books where we've decided to break it down into standardised chapters. We can use the page number as, as a shared reference for any book. And so we find by the start of the... 16th century, by the start of the 1500s, the index becomes more sophisticated. Firstly, with the kinds of books where you'd expect you need a good index, herbals, medicinal books, where we need to know the names of the types of herbs that we're going to use for certain purposes. But then all sorts of books, even poetry books by the end of the 1500s. And certainly by the second half of that century, you're seeing these very sophisticated, multi-tiered 
subheadings of subheadings kind of indexes. At the start of the 1700s, John Locke writes a, a guide for how to how to index your own books. Gosh, so again, this is, this is the reader index. I think it started, it, it's the beginning of the emergence of the kind of shared language that, that you're talking about that becomes becomes humorous, becomes a joke. Lewis Carroll makes fun of it in, in his last novel, Sylvian Bruno. It's got an index, even though it's a novel, but it's full of this kind of houses, uses of, by fat men. And, uh, you know, yes. that, that kind of... Uh, that kind of language is... That in, in the, the Cabbages and Kings passage, you know, the time has come to talk of a... It's indexed as, you know, dialectics, comma. <laughs> <laughs> that type of language has become common enough that you can make a joke about it and expect yeah. your readers to get it. I mean, does it sit then, if it's coming up through the sort of Enlightenment period, somewhere quite near the way in which, because it's so vital for, to scholars now, does it sort of form part of the apparatus of modern scholarship and is it sort of central to the way scholars did their business? God, absolutely. I can't imagine, I can't imagine writing a, a lecture without, without an index. I mean, one of the, the, the big kind of lies of academia is that we've read all the books that we cite. Of course we haven't. We, we just extract read and find the bits. We think, we think the book is going to tell us this. Now I need the quote that demonstrates that it does. I feel awful saying that, but that's, that's the way <laughs> well, that it works. But this is, this is the reason that the index came read. about yeah. in the first place. The index emerges at the same time as the universities and at the same time as the preaching orders, the Dominicans and the Franciscans. Suddenly you have these two great institutions where people either have to, to write sermons or they have to write lectures, where we suddenly need to do, do more with books than just read them slowly, meditatively from start to finish. So the index has always been a kind of way of of reading more books than we could possibly actually, of using books um, without reading them from start to finish, produces a, a anxiety at various points. Certainly at the start of the 18th century, there's this shift away from, I've read all of the classics, I have them all in my head, to, well, I can use an index to, to do more detailed work. And I think we're seeing that at the moment with this anxiety about Google. Is Google making us stupid? There's this another kind of exponential shift in, in the breadth of our reading but not necessarily the depth of our reading and that makes us a bit worried that we're we're changing it's what a new questions scholars ask yeah. now, I, I remember you seeing you give a talk about an index war which I just think is a kind yeah. of fabulous thing to have happened I mean this is presumably was a follow up wasn't it to this idea of you know let no damn Tory index my book. That's right well, well it, it happens at the start of the at the turn of the 18th century and it's really arranged pretty much around the, the Whigs and the Tories, but also the battle of the books, the ancients who believe that the, the classics have, uh, are the high point of intellectual achievement and the moderns who believe that uh, the best is still to come. And the moderns are using indexes and the ancients are really kind of characterised, I suppose, by this type of armchair learning, have, having read everything, knowing everything and then pontificating from your club about uh, about what it means. And somebody like Richard Bentley, the King's librarian, comes along and does this new kind of industrial, close reading mode of scholarship that you couldn't possibly do in your head. He has to use indexes for. And the university men attack him for it. And they attack him in the form of an index, which is called a, a short account of Dr Bentley by way of index. And all of the entries are things like his egregious dullness, his familiarity with books that he's never read, page 14, um, <laughs> and stuff like that. And this really catches on, and, and, and suddenly it gets taken up in political discourse. So in 1705, you find that when you have these literary politicians who, as well as political life, publish accounts of their travels in Italy, for example, the quick thing to do is to rush out an index of their books, 
which is playing off it, which is playing against it, um, which is uh, an index of all of their moments of banality, all of their moments of, of popishness or sympathy with foreigners. And this happens on both the Whig and the Tory side. If you're a politician, you publish a book. Within a couple of months, somebody's going to publish an index making fun of it, pointing out all of its mistakes, even even its grammatical mistakes, even its sort of moments, slips in, I think we in should fine syntax. I think we should, absolutely. There's the, the talk that Boris Johnson's going to do... Uh, biography of Shakespeare. I think the thing to do within a couple of months is to... <laughs> well, as distinguished former editor of this publication, I bet... <laughs> yes, an index. You know, when these index wars, this sort of scurrilous side of things, mm. kind of fizzled out, when, when did the index not become kind of professional? I mean, or did it ever? Gosh, I think it always has. You find records of professional indexes in the early 1300s. The paper records, when the, the paper court was at Avignon, show payments being made for the preparation of indexes. So you find that there are professional indexes 100 years before there were printed books. And certainly you find in, in this moment, in the early 1800s, I was just talking about as, as well, professional indexes there. It's really at the bottom of the publishing food chain. Not very well paid, always in a hurry, because what happens is you need to have the paginated main text before you can have the index. But once you've got the paginated main, once you've got the proofs, you really want to rush the book out. And so the indexer is always under time pressure. I think that's very much the case now. It's the last thing to be done, always done under time pressure. Yes, it often look harried. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But professional indexing really, uh, yes, go, goes back as far back as you want to go. It goes back further than printing. And one thing we've touched on, but I think many people will be sort of surprised by, indexes for novels. Why would you have an index for a novel? Well, for the same reason you'd have an index. I, I think the question is, why wouldn't you? Why did that not catch on? Early novels, in, in uh, the, for example, Richardson's novels, Clarissa and Grandison, he does an index for them. Why wouldn't you? I mean, the novel's just arrived. No one's made up the rules, really. It's, it's kind of like Wild West country. So there are indexes then. The, the novel kind of settles down then. For its, its, its well, I suppose they did also have the sort of running heads at the top of chapters, you know, in yeah, which, which yeah, is a sort yeah. of guide to... Yeah, but it becomes unfashionable to have indexes for novels through the 19th century until Carroll revives it as a kind of joke about what you don't expect in novels. Now other people do it. Virginia Woolf has one, Nabokov has one, and you get indexes... One in Pale Fire. Yeah, Yeah. Pale Fire, which is important to the plot. You need to read the index, it's crucial. You also get indexes for really the, the top canonical stuff. So there's indexes for Walter Scott, there's indexes for Jane Austen, there's an index for... Proust, I think. So this is the, the kind of ultimate canonization when, when an index comes out for a novel, I think. It, it shows that it's really become something that people expect to return to in extract reading. Yes, and J.G. Ballard, of course, famously wrote a short story oh, yeah. in the form of an index. <laughs> yes, that's right. Oh, of course, the index. But this is just what we've been talking about. This is the pleasure of reading an index for itself, like, like those narratives, like the Peterhouse entry in the Trevor Roper book that this is... Yes, if you don't look at the index, you can often miss out, can't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and an index can be a pleasure unto itself. Do you have a favourite? Oh, uh, um, I should ask. <laughs> yeah, my favourite is the, the short account of Dr Bentley by way of index. I love that. I think it's so witty. I'm on the other side of the debate, I think, but I just think that it's such a great play, a great joke, making fun of index scholarship in the form of, in the form of an index. Well, I think we should end there only with a plea from me and all of my colleagues in the Society of Indexers, and I'm sure I'd be joined by Dennis and saying, appreciate your indexer and let a publisher know if an index is lousy or uh, absent, even worse. Anyway, with that, I should say, Duncan, Dennis, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> thank you. And in this week's magazine book section, read Nicholas Shakespeare on Richard Beard's piercing memoir 
of the loss of his brother in childhood and a deep repression that followed on from that. We have A.E. Stallings writing about a new history of the phoenix, not the pub, but the mythical bird. Alexandra Coughlin writes about Min Kim's story of the loss of her Stradivarius violin and the ruination of her prodigy. We celebrate the 50th anniversary of the publication of Ferdinand Mount's first novel, with a long and rapturous appreciation by Richard Davenport Hines. Meanwhile, Paul Keegan looks at a history of the audiobook, or talking book, or book on tape, as you might call it. Mark Cocker delves into creepy crawlies, and we look at Cheswa Miwash's lost science fiction novel. <laughs> 